0: Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett. If you're visiting this morning, uh, we're glad that you're here with us. New students, especially folks visiting from in town and out of town, thanks for being with us this morning. You find us uh, right towards the end of a series in the Book of Genesis. We've been going through Genesis chapters one through eleven the, over the course of the summer, and in two weeks' time, we'll be starting a fall series on the Book of Philippians. But now we're this week we're going to be looking at the story of Noah. And you'll find that in uh, Genesis chapters six through nine. This summer, we've been looking at the early chapters of Genesis, talking about uh, the, this idea that the story starts here. I mean, literally, the story of the Bible starts here. These are the first several chapters. But the story of mankind, of God's dealings with mankind, our story, in fact, starts right here. Um, and we, we come to a very famous story, obviously, this morning, the story of Noah and the flood we're going to be reading chapters 6 through 9, and I'm, we'll be skipping parts of it, so I'll, I'll sort of guide us along as we're reading. If, if you need a Bible and don't have one, you'll find one in the seat in front of you, uh, and we'll be picking up in chapter 6. You'll find that on page 5. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to you and to your word, and we pray that you would open it up right now. Um, this very famous story, what, what do you have for us here? We need to hear your voice. Would you speak with power into our lives by the power of your spirit? And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 6, we'll pick up with verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks. For behold, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Skip down chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Picking up at verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Skip over to chapter 8, verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And so to it we turn this morning. Now, the story of Noah is is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Uh, it, it would be hard to be grow up in Western culture anywhere and not have at least heard something of this story of Noah. And uh, w- you know, we found that my wife and I did once we started having kids that Noah is all over kids stuff. Like we have a Noah puzzle. You know, you, you get you get pictures of of Noah's Ark and the rainbow that you're supposed to hang in uh, your kids' nursery room. Uh, Noah is just everywhere. Now, if For those of us that didn't grow up in the church, uh, it's this bad. There are songs about Noah. Have you ever heard any of these? Here's one of them. Let me me read read to you from the Arky Arky song. I won't sing it. I'll just. uh, God told Noah there's going to be a floody, floody. God told Noah there's going to be a floody, floody. Get those animals out of the muddy, muddy children of the Lord. God told Noah to build an arky, arky. God told Noah to build him an arky, arky. Build it out of gopher barky, barky. (laughs) Children of the Lord. Okay. Our kids grow up singing about the arky song, and here is the problem. If that is what is resonating in your ears, because I just read it, now it is, I'm sorry. uh, Then then you, you realize there's something about the Noah story that we don't get. Okay? Because think about the, the Noah story that we just read when we read it uh, and saw the full breadth of it. Don't you see that the Noah story, it's a little more nuanced than maybe what shows up in uh, you know, most of our kids' books and the pictures we put on the wall, right? We put a picture on the wall of Noah and the ark, but we don't put a picture of what's going on ar- around him, do we, really? I mean, there's a lot going on in this story. But here's what I think we're going to see this morning, that here in the, the story of Noah, we see the gospel at work, the good news of God's salvation at work here. That's what the story is about. And we see it uh, by looking at the three things that come up in the text, the judgment of God and the mercy of God and the commitment of God, his judgment, his mercy, his commitment. OK, first, the judgment of God. This is a story about judgment. Okay, I don't really know how to sugarcoat it. Any more than that. This is one of the stories when we, it's, it's one of those, uh, it, in many ways, for many of us, it's one of those sharp edges when we come to the Bible and we read this and we go, okay, here is a picture of a God who is not like me. Here is a picture of a God who in many ways maybe does things differently than I would do. Here's a God to be reckoned with. This, we have to get this. The Bible says this is a story of judgment. God issues a sentence upon mankind And we see that sentence in in verse 7 of chapter 6. Look with me. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. What's he saying? He's saying capital punishment for the world. He's saying um, that he is going to come and destroy all life. Everything that has breath on the land. Now we mentioned all these kids stories. We, we, we actually one of the kids Bibles we have uh, tells the story a, a little a little differently than most. And we were reading this last night with our kids and said, "Okay, but, you know, this is this is what Daddy's preaching on tomorrow." So we, so we read on the one page you got this picture with Noah and he's got nails in his mouth, and he's hammering away and he's talking about building the ark. And you flip over and the picture along uh, spread out between these two pages is the ark floating and you can see through the water underneath is it covers the hills and the villages and there's just debris everywhere coming up from the land. My daughter turns to me and says, Daddy, did everybody die? And I said, yeah, they did. That's what it's talking about here. God's judgment coming like this. Now it brings up, as we read this story, uh, it brings up some historical questions maybe for you. As you think about it, you know, much in Genesis you read and you think, this sounds so very different than my world life and the way I'm used to seeing or not seeing God at work around me and you might ask questions like this did it really happen if you've ever had that thought many of us have it right on the surface today did it ever, I mean can we can we trust what the Bible said did this really happen and the further question is uh, if you know is this what's it describing here is this a worldwide flood that flooded everything on the world was it a, was it some sort of regional or local flood well, let me give you a couple of thoughts on those two questions without spending really any time on them, but just to say this, the way the Bible presents this in these chapters, uh, it, it is very much presented as a historical incident. I mean, you see Noah, it talks about his age, it talks about what's going on in the earth, it's talking about the years in which the flood came and when it passed. The Bible is saying to us, this is a historical event, it really happened. Now, that might not settle the issue for you, but I do want us to be clear that that's what the Bible's saying, that this really happened. Now, the other question is, is this a worldwide flood? Was it just part of the, you know, was it a region of the earth? The Bible does not tell us, and Christians of many stripes disagree on that very important question. But I think the Bible is not necessarily clear here, and there's room for us to have differences of opinion in that. Uh, it could very well be that this was an in, this covered the entire world, that that's what the writer has in mind. Or it could be that what the writer has in mind is the group of people in the area of the world that he's been talking about for the first five chapters before he got here, up to this in chapter 6, about God creating mankind and seeing mankind begin to grow God putting them in the land this region of the world and so when he talks about all of that being wiped out what he might be speaking about is simply the scope of humanity at that time as it is spread out from where he started it could well be a regional thing we don't know but what we do know is that God comes in and steps in in judgment and if you've uh, been with us this summer or are familiar with the first few chapters of Genesis, what we are seeing here is a picture of the world being unmade. It's being undone. God is taking out his eraser and he's rubbing it across the universe. If you go back to Genesis 1, it speaks about the six days of creation. Day one, God creates light. Day two, what does he do? It says that he separates the waters, the waters above from the waters below. He creates the sky and the earth out of this watery chaos. And in day three, it says that he takes the waters and separates from it the dry land, pushes the waters back further still that there could be life on earth. You see, those two days are all about God taking the water and ruling over it and bringing order out of chaos. And what happens here? The water comes back. It says the the heavens unleash their water, that the deeps erupt and the water fills the earth. This is the undoing, the unraveling of creation. God takes his good creation And the judgment that he brings on it is to wipe out what he has created up to this point. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, here's what uh, the story tells us about the offense. That's the judgment. Here's what it tells us about the offense. Look with me in verse 5, chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil, continually. And then down in verses 11 and 12, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. He said it has gone so terribly wrong. And that's exactly what we've been seeing in these last few weeks as Genesis spins out from what begins as a good creation with, with mankind in perfect harmony and relationship with each other and with God. Adam and Eve turning their backs on God in Genesis chapter 3 and everything becoming unraveled. What happens after Adam and Eve? The very next generation, we looked at this last week, Cain and Abel, these two brothers, Cain who is, feels rejected by God he becomes angry and he kills his brother, the first murder in the very next generation of humanity. And things get worse from there. It spins on out from there over these next few chapters until you get here where God says he looks he says there is only evil there is only violence continually everywhere I look it is degenerated to this point he says everything about the world bent away from him and here is one important thing that I think we see here after Genesis 2 God creates man and woman once we hit Genesis chapter 3 and they turn away from Genesis chapter 3 onward there is no golden age for us to get back to. There's no perfect place. There's no perfect time. There's no perfect era in time when people basically had it right. What does it show us? That the world is in desperate straits. And we see this in the world before the flood. So we're gonna see it's the reality of the world after the flood as well. No time got it right. So we see the we see the judgment, we see the offense that provoked that judgment. And then here we also see the judge. We see God the judge, the reality of him as judge. And Scripture is very clear that he is our creator, and he is the one who does in fact rightfully stand in judgment over us. What do we see about this judge? Well, we see here that he's engaged in what's going on. I mean, verse 5, it says that the Lord saw the wicked, the wickedness. Uh, verse 11 You know, everything was corrupt in God's sight. Verse 12, God saw the earth. You see what's going on? God is not distant. He hasn't simply spun the world up and stepped back. He is actively engaged. He is watching what is going on. He is seeing this. As the world spins out, literally out of control, God sees. He sees what happens. And don't we ask that same question sometimes, too, when we look around ourselves, whether in our own lives or the world around us, does God really see what's going on here? I mean, does he care? Does he care the way things even now are spinning out of control? Does he care about wars across the world? Does he care about violence? Does he care about people being um, oppressed and abused? Does he care? Can he even see? And you see, we find here that God, the judge, he really does care. And don't you see there, when we just even think about it in terms of our own world, don't you see that it matters, that God is a judge? Because what if he doesn't see? Or what if he doesn't care? What if at the end of the day, there is no righteous judge who will bring the world to account? Then all our concern for oppression and all our concern for injustice, all our concern for the wrongs we see in our own lives have no ultimate reference point. None of it matters unless at the end of the day there is a God to whom it matters very dearly. Because when we cry out for justice, we are crying out for a just one who cares. You can put things straight. And that's what the Bible tells us exists, our God, that He is Judge. What does He think when He sees? What does He think when He looks out and sees what's happened, has happened to the world? Well, you might be carrying the baggage from long, long ago where you simply see God in His um, uncontrolled, vehement wrath. And maybe what you are scared you're going to see here again is a God out of control and oppressor. What do we see here? We see a God who is a liberator and who cares because what does it say about him and his reaction when he sees what's going on? Look at verse six. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to the heart. How does God respond when he sees the brokenness of the world? It grieves him to the heart. It breaks his heart. He cares that much. He is not Stoic and impassive and removed. He is a God who has invested himself. He has plunged himself into the world of human history. And he cares what happens. And he sees what has happened to the world. And it breaks his heart. If you were to be one of the original readers of this, reading this in the context of other cultural pictures of the flood, you would have read things like, and some of you read it in school, the Epic of Gilgamesh. And there are a couple other stories that come from the ancient Near East. When you read stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh, when it tells the flood story, it talks about the gods in plural unleashing the flood on humanity. Why? Because they had grown so numerous and they were so noisy that they were continual pests all the time, and the gods wanted some peace and quiet. That's why the flood came in the Epic of Gilgamesh and others. Why? Because because the gods were peeved at humanity. And what was going on in the earth. So they unleashed this flood to get rid of the pests. That's the cultural world this comes out of. And compared to that, what does it do? This, the Bible tells us, no, there was judgment. But why? Because God is a righteous judge. And he is grieved over the brokenness and the wickedness and the sin and the fallenness of the world. It grieves him to the heart. He's not annoyed. He's morally indignant. And he cares. He's concerned. So he does something about it. He brings a day of judgment. Now if that were the if that were all their their word of the story if that was the end of it then, then we would not be having this conversation today would we that would that'd be it but this is a story not only of God's judgment but also of his mercy because what does he do he saves the world in the midst of judgment what does he do he looks over the world and he calls out Noah and his wife and his children and their wives, this one family. And he tells Noah to go and build an ark so that he might take in the animals of the world and preserve them. That they might be, they might be saved through judgment. And look what it says about Noah. This, he is remarkable. And it might just sort of slide by us. But, but for the writer of Genesis, it, it's important that we get him. Look at this. Chapter 6, verse 9 it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And then you go to chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you were righteous before me in this generation. It says that he was righteous, that he was blameless. Okay, he's one of the two or three people in the entire Old Testament who are described this way. Somebody righteous, blameless, walked with God. Now, when the Bible uses the term blameless, it doesn't mean without sin, but it means somebody who lives life consistently, along the grain of God's purposes, walks in the ways of God. He's righteous. He's in right relationship with his God and with the people around him. He was an exemplary man. Uh, I've been reading the book uh, uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. He's a guy that wrote tipping point and in blank. And in this book Outliers, he defines an outlier, <clears throat> it's a statistical word, and it's someone in this case or a statistical point that is that's just way off the chart from the way the rest of everything falls on the graph. And so an outlier, a person, is somebody who's just off the charts in some area of life, just so above and beyond the way the rest of us operate and work. He talks about these people with just incredibly high IQs. Uh, he talks about people that are, for instance, um, you know, an, an athlete that is just beyond what anybody else can even touch, that there are people out there that are these outliers, just unbelievably exemplary Okay, Noah is the moral outlier of the Old Testament. That's what he's saying about him. He is just unlike anybody else. And God comes to Noah and he says, I want you to go build an ark. I'm bringing judgment, but I want you to be the vehicle through which the world is ultimately saved. And so Noah does it. He builds this enormous ark. Now, without getting into all the architecture behind it, you know, this This thing was uh, a football field and a half long, and it was enormous, and it had three decks, and so Noah gives his life to building a boat out in the middle of nowhere when there was no rain in sight. He follows God. He takes him in his word. Because of that, the world is saved. Okay, now, we've got the judgment of God, the mercy of God that shines through here, but also we see the commitment of God, and we, and we start to see it here. Did you notice what happened after the flood, as soon as God rescues Noah and his family and the animals, and he brings them to a safe resting ground, and finally they came off the boat, what would you expect to see next? If ever there was a clean slate for humanity, this was it, right? All the wicked people have been destroyed. Everything's been wiped clean. So, when Noah and his family come off the boat, anything that's going to happen on the blank canvas of the world at that point is going to come from the raw materials that were on the boat, right? Okay, uh, I heard this story. Tim Keller, a pastor's wife, was teaching Sunday school to kids on, about Noah's Ark, about this story. And so she asked the kids, she said, What did Noah take with him on the boat? What did Noah take with him on the boat? Okay, kids said, Animals. He took animals. Birds. He took birds. Food. He took food for the animals. Um, they start coming up dry. Bag, they took their luggage. Right. They took their luggage. What else? What else did they take on the boat? What else did they take on the boat? And all the kids look at her. She says this. They took sin on the boat. That's what they took on the boat. Don't you see that in the midst of this story in this judgment, as soon as they step out into this brand new world, we see that the sin that existed before the world was destroyed, it was exactly the same sin that came with them. If you, were to, if you flip over to chapter 9, when, as soon as they step off the boat, Noah makes a sacrifice. And right after that sacrifice in some verses we didn't read in the first several verses of chapter 9, God immediately starts speaking to Noah about murder and what to do about murder and why that is so significant to him. And uh, when Noah offers this sacrifice, um, in chapter 8, verse 20, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I mean, do you hear that? We get through all of this and God says, I know the truth about humanity, that still this is the case for him, that man's heart is evil from his youth. And if you were to read on in the latter part of chapter 9, right after this, all of this, Noah, the, the next scene is Noah in his room, drunk and exposed and humiliated. The world has not gotten better. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian novelist, said this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. What does Noah find? He he finds that they have brought that same disease with them. Don't you see, if there was ever an A-team of humanity, this was it righteous Noah and his family. If anyone might be able to carry the day, it was going to be them and they couldn't. And it speaks to us too. We are never finally going to get it right. We're never going to be educated enough. And we're never going to be technologically advanced enough. We're never going to have a perfect, spotless enough church. We're never going to be able to get it right. This was driven home to me when we started having children and I had this sort of parental urge come welling up that I never suspected was in there. We had our first kids and I thought, and, and suddenly I would find people saying things to me like, I can't imagine trying to bring up a child in this world. And I'm like, yeah. And so I, I, I started having these fantasies. You know what we need to do? We need to move to Montana, buy a bunch of land, build a barbed wire fence around it, and I need to buy a shotgun. That's what we need to do. Because all that stuff that's out there, and then here's what you finally realize, though. We can go do that, and we can hide in the compound, but what's the problem? It's in there, too, because it's in us, and you can't run far enough. You can't put enough protective barriers to hide yourself from the fallenness of the world and the evil that runs through it. It says it runs right through the line in our own hearts. G.K. Chesterton, English writer, responded to a question that was posed in the Times newspaper back in the, early, uh, in the 1900s, and it asked this question. "says What, What's wrong with this world? Chesterton wrote in the simple answer. I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That's exactly what we find here. The problem runs right through us. That's the world when they get off the boat. What's going to happen? We see here a God... Who makes a commitment? The words of the Bible, God who makes a covenant, a God who makes an agreement, a binding agreement on himself. He decides to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Look back with me at chapter eight, verses 21 and 22. As he smells the aroma of this sacrifice that Noah is offered, he says, "I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth." Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And he goes on in the following verses, tells Noah, I'm making a covenant with you, with everyone who comes after you, that I will not destroy the world this way again. And so that you remember it and so that I remember it, I am setting my bow in the heavens, that when the clouds break and I see that, I will remember my promise to you. Never to wipe out humanity like I have here. What's he doing? This covenant he makes with all mankind. Let me just suggest this. He's making space. He's making space. He's buying time. He's setting back judgment. In order that he might finish the story that he began. Because when we see what happened to mankind before the flood and we see that the problem still remains after the flood, we see that once God has committed himself to creating mankind, to watching us walk away from him, when he makes the decision that I'm not going to destroy them, but I'm going to see this story through, then what he's saying is there is no shortcut here. There is no easy way to tie up The unraveled, broken world in one fell swoop like a flood. What does he say? I am committed all the way. I am going to see this story through. And it's not going to be by avoiding the problems of the human heart, but by going right through them. I am going to bring a solution that will put this to peace once and for all. And when he gives this covenant to mankind, he says, I am going to protect this world so that I may finish my story. A story that began well. A story that was hijacked by us, turning away from God. But a story of God who would not turn away from us. Because we see here that God's going to finish the story by finally and fully doing what even Noah could not do. He couldn't get far enough away from the wickedness. He couldn't be righteous and blameless enough. What did he need? He needed actual rescue himself. Noah the rescuer, Noah the savior, in need of a savior himself. And God gives him a glimpse of that when he steps off the boat and his first action is to do what? To offer a sacrifice. He knew what he was saying in that moment? As he literally killed animals and offered them on a fire to God, what was he saying? I deserve judgment too. Please take this instead of me. And we see that theme run through Scripture of sacrifice for God's people so that they will not bear the weight. And what do we see? We see uh, finally and ultimately the perfect sacrifice come. We see God in the flesh, Jesus come, that he might be that sacrifice for us. Now back to the book, Outliers. One of the things that he takes up in this book, even as he talks about people that are utterly remarkable, he says, you know, we tend to look at people like that and say, there is a self-made man, there is a self-made woman. Look at what they have done with their lives. But part of the theme of the book is that that's not true of anybody, that there are always right circumstances. There are always things that you inherit from your family and from your culture that puts you at just the right moment to take advantage of those things. And if you were to go back and look in in Genesis chapter 5, you'd see the long genealogy of Adam to Noah. And you would see that Noah had come in the line of a long line of people who followed God, who set their hope on him. That was his family heritage that was passed on to him. But don't you see, it wasn't enough for him. We need an outlier that has a better family history than that. We need an outlier that doesn't simply bring the goodness of a broken, you know, in the midst of brokenness of a family line. The godliest people on earth who still fall short. What do we need? We need an outlier who has a different family history. We need one who comes to us without the stain. We need someone who comes to us without the brokenness, without the family history that Noah brought into the ark. We need Jesus. We need God in the flesh for us. We need the perfect one who, when he did not have to, stepping down into this world, that he might take the weight of God's judgment on himself. Then when God pours out His judgment in its fullness, it will no longer be the weight of a deluge hitting the world. It will be the weight of God's judgment poured out on His Son willingly so that we won't feel it, so that we won't take the hit. Where do we end up at the end of Noah? We started with the kids' stories and the archie And the picture hanging in the nursery of the boat and the animals and the rainbow. And the truth is, that's not a bad place to end. Because though this story is so much more nuanced than my kids realize yet, they do get the take-home. They do see what shines through here. That God rescues his people. My hope for my children as they grow up, They read this story in its fullness. They'll come to realize this. I thought this was a a good story about God saving the animals and saving Noah and his family. But the truth is, he didn't even have to do that. Look what happens to Noah afterwards. Look at this picture of God's grace in the midst of judgment deserved that he would preserve his people that He would save even us, that God even now would stay His hand to create space for us even today as we cry out to Him in faith. That Jesus for us, the gospel according to Noah. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we grapple with the reality of this story. And I pray for those of us that are, that are hung up even on the first point, that You are a God who is judge and who brings judgment. Um, it is the weight of the reality that we live in, that we are people who deserve it. And you are God who is judged, but you see and you care. And you, by your goodness and grace, have made space that we might come to know you. And you've given us this picture of the rainbow and the clouds and the stain of your wrath. And we see that most clearly in Jesus when you not only held wrath at bay, but you satisfied Your righteous anger, it is paid for. And so uh, for us, looking to Christ in faith, we never have to hang our head low in shame again. We have found your favor. You have broken through the clouds, and you have poured out light on us through Jesus. The good news of the story of judgment is that you save us. Would that shine brightly for us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.